morning, everyone. I'm going to steal Delaney's stand. I'll, I'll put it back, Delaney. I'm sorry. Just like I found it. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm always super excited to be able to come and share what God's put on my heart and just be a part of this community. Um, I think as Nathan mentioned, uh, Mike and Jesse are currently on maternity and paternity leave uh, with their new baby, West, um, who I have not met yet. I'm very excited to meet. Um, but yeah, so we've, we're not really in a sermon series at this moment. We're kind of just having some different guest speakers come and, and share God's word on, uh, on the Sundays for this month. Um, so last week we had Mark share uh, a really powerful message about resolutions and about kind of living out of forgiveness. Uh, I was sad I wasn't actually in that message. I was in kids. I don't know if any of you heard us last week, <laughs> but it was the loudest kids time I think we've ever had. There was definitely at one point, and I'm, I'm very proud of this actually because we were talking about Jesus heals, and I was like, you know what would be a really good idea is get the kids to yell in unison, Jesus heals as loud as they can, and it went great. They were very enthusiastic, and they're all running around, and they're screaming, Jesus heals at the top of their lungs, and it's great, and then suddenly, dear little Charlie is like, guys, everyone heals, and I was like, theologically, no, <laughs> and Charlie and Cyrus and Constance are running around, everyone heals, and I was like, no, no, no. We were so loud, we made it onto the podcast. If you listen to Mark's sermon, and you should because it's wonderful, you will also hear a bunch of children screaming in the background from way over there. So very proud of that. Um, But yeah, so Mike asked uh, a few months ago if I'd be willing to share this Sunday, um, and he did something terrifying, and he said that I could share on whatever I wanted to. Um, Guys, God is infinite, and the Bible's really long, so there's a lot of options there. So I took some time to pray and ask God and seek God and what was it that I really uh, was on my heart? What is it that I wanted to share on? And as I was asking God, I had this really annoying question coming back at me, which is, what are you struggling with? And so I was spending some time thinking through, like, do I want to share on what's hard for me? And I haven't been to Bible college. I haven't been to seminary. Everything that I've taught out of in the past and I'm teaching out of now is just my own experience, what God's done in my life. And so that was a really cool and challenging question because my first thought was like, well, do I want to share with my community what I'm struggling with? And the honest answer is, yeah, of course. I love this community. I wouldn't be here if this wasn't a place I felt like I could be vulnerable and be myself with. Um, but it's also a place to speak out of that. I'm, I want to just speak out of what God's done in my life and what God has taught me. And so we're just going to Start off, I want to open us up in prayer and then dive on into uh, what I feel like God's put on my heart. Sound good? Father, just thank you so much for this community. Thank you that you are here with us. I ask that you would be present in everyone's hearts in this room. We would all know that you are here first and foremost. That any of my words that are mine, God, that they would just fall and only your truth, your love, your joy, your desire for us would come across purely and truly, so that as we walk out of this place, we all feel as we know you a little bit more, a little bit more pushed forward into what it means to know you, and just encourage in our relationships with you and with each other, in your name. Amen. So we're going to start off, um, if you have your Bibles, great. If not, the verses will be up on the screen. Uh, I wanted to start off with Matthew 7, 21, because as I was praying through and thinking through what is it that I struggle with, this 
uh, my encounter with this verse when I was in high school really jumped out to me because I remember reading this Bible verse in high school and it terrified me, shook me to my core in what it meant to be a Christian. Um, when I was like 15, 16, I was a really good Christian kid. Um, I was homeschooled for one, so that's a great start. Um, I went to my youth group regularly. I was like in leadership with my youth group. I was involved. I played Kajabi Can Can. I went to all the Bible studies. Um, I was pretty bad at Kajabi Can Can. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. Um, and I was involved with, like, the kids' ministry and serving there. I had good theology, very important. Um, I had a lot of this stuff right. And I remember reading this verse, and suddenly it hit me really hard. I was like, oh, gosh, none of this matters. Uh, so open up to Matthew seven twenty-one if you have your Bibles. Um, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And, I, will I, and I, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So like 16-year-old Amy reads this and is like, oh no, this external stuff doesn't mean anything. What does it actually mean to know God? And that fear came out of this place of wanting to be able to control my relationship with God. I really wanted to say, yes, I'm a good Christian. Yes, because I've done these things, I am a good follower of Christ. And it really occurred to me very deeply that I, I don't feel like I know God that well. And then it got even scary because I was like, well, if, if I don't know God that well, because I would have guessed that my youth leaders would look at everyone in the youth group and be like, well, if anyone has a relationship with God, Amy's a pretty good example. Because I, I, I had the right life. I had the right externality. But I also knew at the same time that a lot of that stuff came really easy to me. Like, I was raised in the church. I was raised with the idea of what it means to love God and know God. I was raised with the Bible. I was raised with a, a parents who were incredibly, who are here, by the way. Hi. <laughs> I was raised with parents who taught me what it also means to serve God and to give your life to God. So I had a really good start. And it, everything felt pretty easy from there. And so when reading this verse and realizing if I, if I don't feel like I know God, what the heck am I supposed to do to feel that way? How do I get there? And this spiraled out through my life. This was a starting point that at, at, in high school kind of kicked off a lot of these subsequent fears that I had. You know, I remember trying to decide when I, I went and did missions in London, and when I was trying to decide if I was going to stay there or come back afterwards, the fear was that maybe, maybe I'd be like Jonah, and maybe God was telling me to stay, and I was actually leaving and walking away from my calling from God. Maybe in staying at this church or, or attending this service or working in this ministry, maybe, maybe I'm rejecting God's calling on my life. Or maybe if I, if I don't serve this one time, I've, I've just completely pushed aside God. And all of my decisions became this thing of fear of like, what is it that God wants out of me? What do I have to do? And like in my head, I got the theology like, yeah, we're saved by grace. But this wasn't a question of salvation for me. This was a question of how do I live my life? I trusted that God loved me. I trusted that I was saved. But it was still like, but do I know God? How do I actually live out of this? I, the book of Jonah was just terrifying for me. I read that, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Jonah. God's going to ask me to do something out of fear. I'm going to say no. We're not going to read the whole book of Jonah right now. <laughs> we have done that. Thanks to Nathan. <laughs> I'm preaching two weeks. 
Okay, we'll, we'll be there in two weeks, it's fine. Um, so out of this place, I want to turn to two characters in the Bible uh, that have really challenged the way I viewed this and brought me a lot of encouragement and also kind of redoubled my fears when I first read this story. Um, but we're going to look at Saul and David. Um, so I don't know how much everyone here knows about the history of the Israelites uh, or about Saul and about David, but the long story short is Saul was the first king of Israel. So after hundreds of years, the Israelites have been uh, living under judges. And so these are the prophets and the speakers of God who are kind of acting out the the life of the Israelites through the voice of God. Um, but they're not kings. They were judges. They got appointed them as time progressed. It wasn't like they had a kid and that kid then became the next ruler. Um, so with the judges in place, the Israelites are looking around at the other cultures around them and saying like, well, they all have kings. Why do we have a judge? And so they go to the prophet Samuel and say, no, we want a king. So Samuel goes and prays to God and he's like, hey, they want a king. And then God's like, that's not really a good idea, but give them what they want. Very summarized version, guys. Just let you know. Um, and so God tells Samuel to anoint this guy named Saul. And Saul had this great external appearance of a king. He was tall, he was handsome, uh, and he was, like, powerful, had done well in battle. Uh, just, like, he had a lot of the external qualities that the Israelites were looking for. Um, and as Saul begins his kingship, you begin to see these character flaws come out in his decisions he makes. And eventually... God rejects him as king and has Samuel anoint a new king, David. There's one story specifically I want to take a look at. It's 1 Samuel 13. And this is a story that goes back to that same thing where I read the story and kind of that fear built up again after I read it. I was like, I don't, I don't get what Saul did wrong here. Like, I kind of get it, but I also didn't. Um, and I was like, what if I do something like that? What if I make a bad decision? What if I offend God with my choices somehow? Um, so we're just going to jump into the story. It's, uh, if you want to follow along, it's Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 14. Oh, and the context of this is at this moment, it's still pretty, Saul's pretty early on in his kingship, and he is waiting to go into battle with the Philistines. He's waiting for Samuel to show up and do a sacrifice and get God's favor in this battle. Um, and the, the fighters that he has, the Israelites, are scared, and they're starting to get nervous and starting to want to leave. Um, so it says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. Uh, prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, 
I get it. Saul disobeyed God. I'm not questioning that. But I remember reading this and being like, ooh, that feels like a harsh reaction for the decision he made. I didn't get it at the time. I was like, he, he sacrificed to God. He was trying to get God's favor in doing something God told him to do. I, I really struggled with this. This really scared me. I was like, is God this harsh that he would remove an entire kingdom from Saul because Saul preemptively did a sacrifice? Because it's not like David, the person he appoints afterwards, is perfect. This guy does tons of bad things, disobeys God multiple times in very extreme ways. And you can read through First and Second Samuel and kind of pick up those stories. But trust me, David did some bad things. Um, so I just read this and I was like, why, God? Why does he have his entire kingdom removed in this moment? Why is God saying that he's going to pursue, he's going to look for someone after his own heart because Saul sacrificed? I didn't get it. And it scared me because I was afraid that I would make some kind of similar slip up. I would make a decision and God would be like, mm, no, I'm going to pull this calling away from your life now. Or you're not going to be able to follow me anymore because you made, or like in the same way, in the same extent, you're not going to live a life with my blessing because you made this one decision. Terrified me. And so that's where I'm speaking out of today is this idea of intimacy versus idolatry. What is an intimate relationship with God and what is an idolatrous relationship with God? So it took me like 20 minutes to get to the title of this. <laughs> Just had a good ramp up. Um, so in talking about intimacy versus idolatry, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say Saul has this idolatrous relationship with God, whereas David, we see this balanced, intimate relationship with God. And it's not based on all of these external actions. It's based on the heart. Saul's decision here reveals something going on in his heart that is idolatrous. Idolatry always scared me as a word. It's a very like Old Testament sin word, like don't have idols before God. Uh, and I've heard so many sermons about like, you know how idolatry is like, you know, these images in the Old Testament. Well, now it's our job. It's our money. It's our family. All true. Like we can serve these things as idols. It's when you put something above God, you make it more important than God. But when I was in college, I found this really, really compelling idea of idolatry that completely transformed the way that I understood idolatry to be. Um, and this is where I'm going to get made fun of in the future because I'm going to quote some 17th century English poetry um, and talk about witch hunting, but bear with me, I promise. It totally relates. It's really good. I love John Milton. It's one of my favorite poets of all time. If you don't know who John Milton is, you, you probably won't enjoy reading it unless you're like me. There's like Megan probably will enjoy this. Um, John Milton was a 17th century English poet. He wrote a book or like a very long poem called Paradise Lost. The book is like, I think, 12 chapters long, um, all poetry, and it's all about the story of the fall of man. He wrote this in like 1620, I think, somewhere around there. Um, and it's a beautiful poem. He takes, and the entire thing is written on Satan's perspective of Adam and Eve's fall, the decision, the moment they ate the apple. And it's very long and about that. Um, absolutely wonderful. So he wrote this in response to this very insane thing happening uh, in the early church. Had kind of died out around the time John Milton's writing. But you guys will all know what I mean when I say, like, witch hunting in Europe, also in America. Very bad. I will not discuss all the problems in this. It is a long, extensive list of problems of why people were hunting witches. But what actually was interesting in this was that historically, as people were 
looking for witches to burn. Um, again, bad, all problems. Um, they, the church was doing this because the Bible does condemn witchcraft. There's multiple times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, where it says witchcraft, bad, don't do this. And so the early ch- the, the church in like the Middle Ages started hunting out people that they deemed as witches and murdering them. So there's this book that was written to help people do that. It's called the Malaeus Maleficarum. Don't have to be tested on that. It's fine. It's this book that defines how do you spot a witch, how do you know what she's doing, and then here's how you respond. It's a fascinating book. It's kind of like, uh, have any of you seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? All right, so you guys know the scene where they're discussing, like, is she a witch? And they end up concluding that, like, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's a witch. This whole book is like that. It's just absurd. It's tons of weird things like that. And you're like, really? Like, she ate a cabbage and now she has to be burned? It's like, it's really bad. Um, There is a a cabbage in there that has a demon, apparently. It's a lot, guys. Um, So in this book, what what actually is happening, though, is it's defining what makes someone, you know, a a person who uses witchcraft. And it's this this kind of a control power thing where you do, you say this word, you do this chant, you manipulate these objects, and then this very intense spiritual thing happens. And then what's interesting is you see the church's response to this. Okay, you spot this. Now you say this prayer. You say these words in repetition. You put oil here, and something powerful spiritual happens. And so as you're looking at this, you're recognizing that the church suddenly has this very similar response, exactly the same as what witchcraft is, it's almost identical in the way they treat it. The things they're doing are different. You know, it's like here they would put this weird thing in this pot and say these words. And this other one, it's like you pray and you do this. But it's very exact. It's very mathematical. And it's saying that if you behave in this way, God will spiritually respond in this way you want him to. He will do this. So if you do, if this person does A, B, C, they deserve to die. So you do A, B, C, and this will fix the problem. This person attacks you with this curse. Here's exactly the exact words and formulas you use to protect yourself in the name of Jesus. You can kind of see the problem in this, right? It's not actually relying on Jesus. It's relying on a formula. It's relying on a phrase. It's relying on an idea. It's not actually relying on who God is. There's no trust involved. There's no faith involved. No relationship. It's a manipulation of spirituality. There's a B in here. I'm sorry. It's going around. Yep, we're good. It's a manipulation of spirituality and, and relationship with God in order to achieve a very specific result. So Milton reads this and understands this about the church. Sorry if you're on the podcast. This bee's really causing a problem. Carly's really struggling here. I think it's gone. <laughs> but Casey's at the ready if it comes back, so just wave if you need it. Yep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Carly's out (laughs) so this is something that while the actual witchcraft and witch hunting did not remain as part of the church forever there was a lot of cultural things that started in this moment that began to dictate your the state of your salvation based on exchangeable transactional relationship with God if you say these words if you pay this money if you do these things you will have this relationship it's transactional and John Milton sees this 
and decides to try and write this poem that expresses the relationship with Adam and Eve, the moment of the fall, and not just a pure moment of obedience, but a moment where they're idolizing the fruit itself as something that has power. They no longer put the power on the disobedience of God. They put it on the idea that this apple has a kind of power. And if I engage with it, I will get these results. So I began to realize when I read this, this book for the first time and was kind of reading through um, that I began, I, I realized that I idolized my own abilities to succeed or fail in my relationship with God. I was idolizing my capability to know God. That if I did these sort of things incorrectly, God would no longer want to know me. God would no longer bless my life. It was purely transactional in my mind. And because I recognized that I had this base belief, if I believe that I can control my relationship with God and then recognize my own human fallibility, it builds something, this cycle of fear. It is in my control but I am not always going to make a good decision. Hence my fear of someone like Jonah or my fear of this moment with Saul. It's in my control. I'm going to fail. Therefore, how do I know God? You see how that kind of builds this terrible cycle. If we believe somewhere that our ability to know God is in our control to either succeed or to fail, at some point in that cycle, you will recognize that you are human and you're going to make a bad decision. You're going to do something wrong. You're going to fail at it. And then if, so if your relationship with God is solely dependent on you, you really think that's going to uphold. When we desire to know God also, out of wanting something specific out of him, that is idolatry. So in this moment, as Saul does this sacrifice. He's not doing it because he loves God or that he trusts that God actually has the best in mind for him and the Israelites. Had Saul trusted that God made him king because he loved him, had God become uh, involved with Israel at all because he loved them, do you think Saul would have preemptively done this in order to get God's favor? He already had God's favor. If he serves God, loves God, and trusts that God loves the Israelites, isn't that favor enough? But he felt like he could only defeat the Philistines if he did it, if he did this transactional thing. All right, God, I want this to go well. I'm going to give you this, and then you will bless me. It's not the sacrifice that's the problem. It's the idea, or not even the fact that, you know, Samuel said, wait, and he's like, no, nah, I want to do this myself. It Because it came out of a heart that did not trust God and wanted a result. It wanted something specific. Saul was going to be a good king. He was going to do it well, and therefore he's going to do this to make sure God's favor is on that. This is why Samuel responds and says, uh, the Lord has sought, a man out, sought out a man after his own heart. That's what God was looking for in a king. God was looking for someone who actually pursued God's heart. And so I want to turn to a story that uh, exemplifies what it means that David was a God, man after God's heart. Uh, and I'm not going to read this one. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you because um, it's a little bit longer. David is, this is years and years later after this moment with Saul. 
So Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel. When David's still a kid, um, he's probably like 16, 17 at this time. And Samuel anoints him and says, you're going to be king over Israel. And then a lot of series of events happen in David's life to bring him to a place where he's in this close relationship with Saul. He's uh, singing and like a part of Saul's, I don't know, like group entourage. There we go. Entourage. That's the right word. Um, That's definitely not the right word, but. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> but David and Saul have this close relationship. And then uh, David's great. David defeats Goliath, uh, for one. David's, like, real tight with Saul's son, Jonathan. Um, David ends up falling in love with Saul's daughter. Uh, and there's all these series of events that happen. And David's also be building a following in Israel. There's people who look at him and go, this guy, this guy's great. He's still not king at this moment. Saul is the king. And Saul becomes jealous very, very jealous, and begins trying to kill David. And so after several attempts on David's life, David finally takes a small group of men, and they flee, and they hide in the mountains, and they're trying to get away from Saul. Saul gets uh, a bunch of men, uh, 3,000, and goes and pursues David. And so there's this point where Saul is pursuing David. They're at these caves, and Saul's by himself, and David and his men happen to be hiding in the same cave. And his men say, hey, look, he's right there. Kill him now. Just be done with it. God said you were going to be king. You, you clearly have a following. You are capable of this. You killed Goliath. Whatever these thoughts are going through David's head. And there's Saul, who's really not acting like a king at that moment. He's not doing well. He's had multiple events at this time where he has either lost a battle or done something out of God's favor. And he's, he's not being a good king. And there he is right there in front of David. And I'll just read to you what David says. Well, so first David, he arose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, no, sorry, and afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put up my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So despite what God has spoken into David's life, David knows that he is, he is anointed to be king. He chooses in this moment not to kill Saul, even though it logically would make the most sense. That would be a good time thing to do that. It would probably work out in David's favor logically. But David recognizes that God anointed Saul as king. That was not David's decision. That was, that was God's decision. Why would he go against that? David trusts God so implicitly that he believes that God has the best in mind. God anointed David as king, he'll be king one day. It doesn't need to be his job to get it done. He doesn't need to make that happen. He doesn't need to put himself there. He can trust God and do, make the right decision with what's in front of him, knowing that God has the best in mind. I love David as an example of what it means to have an intimate relationship with God because David fails at it so many times. But in this moment, we see that David's heart truly is So just trust that God probably has the best. He may not know how it's going to work. He may not be able to make it work himself, and he shouldn't because God has it under control. I just find the the balance between this idea of Saul and David so compelling because what it reminds me is that I don't have to try so hard to get God's favor. I just have to look and say, what does it mean to know God? And how do I trust that God loves me enough to want to know me as well? 
that God does have the best in, his, in, in, in plan for my life. I don't know what that looks like. I can't control it. I can't guarantee it. And it's the best in mind for my life is just not what God has in mind. So why would I try and hold on to that so tightly that I disobey God in the process? Intimacy with God is we must start to recognize that God is already with us. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. God wants us. Trying to use practices, disciplines, or actions to get myself closer to God isn't going to get me anywhere. It gets me caught up in the idea of what I'm capable of. It doesn't get me closer to him. All it does is make me feel like I have some control on this matter when I really, I don't, I don't need to. I don't have to have that control. The, the balance that I, I have a hard time with in this is it's easy for me to say like, okay, well, God is with us. God is here. Why do we still do these things? What's the point if God already is here? And this is something where in our last sermon series on the image of God and the authentic self versus the false self is this discussion we had of the kind of the, the person that we are, um, that God made us to be, isn't always who we're living as. This false self is the, what we live into. Um, it's like who a person we believe that we are. It's the way we see ourselves. It's not always our true self. It's a self we want to put on so other people see and that we see in order to kind of calm those fears we have of who we might actually be. We had a whole series on that. If you're curious more on that, there's amazing books, and there's, um, you can also go back and listen to the podcast. But what I want to say with that is that the practices, the, the ways in which we relate to God. So maybe in the Old Testament, there was the importance of sacrifice. We don't do that anymore. What are the practices in our life now? Prayer, worship, church. These practices, the goal is not to get ourselves closer to God. It's to leave space to strip away the things that prevent us from recognizing where he already is. That's the importance of prayer, of worship, of reading the Bible, of being in a community. That's why we do these things. We don't do them because they achieve something external. We're not taking step closer steps to God. We don't need that. But the reality is I constantly live in fear, live in control, live in this place where I don't believe that God is near me. And I, I don't know how to fix those things, but they're keeping, they're, they're kind of this barrier between me and God. When I don't trust God, when I have fear of how he feels about me, I can't always force myself out of that. That's just the state that I'm in. So these practices we build up, prayer, worship, scripture, community, it gives space for God to speak to us in that. It gives space for us to recognize those things about ourselves. My emphasis here really is God is with you already where you're at. You believe in God. You gave your life to Jesus. Accept that God is here with you. Do not try and push yourself to get closer to him. You don't need to. But also, don't let that be a reason to not, to not move into these things that get us uh, that, that strip away those things that block us. Does that difference make sense? I hope so. I want to... In Mark's book about resolutions last week, and it was funny, I don't think many people made resolutions this year, 
Um, I think that was the con I, I didn't see the hands raised. Okay, Mark's affirming that. Not many people raise their hands. I'm not one for New Year's resolutions. Um, but what I, what I do want to move into is a resolve to be more aware of where God is in my life, to be more aware of God's presence in my life. So there's a few simple points of this that I want to encourage everyone here just to be aware of. It's not, this isn't a, a to-do list. It's a let's think about these things. The first one is in, in an intimate relationship with God and an idolatrous relationship with God. The difference we see is relationship versus religion. And this one feels kind of straightforward. In religion, we're doing things to achieve a certain goal. We're trying to live a certain way to get to a certain place. Whereas in relationship, the outcome isn't going to be guaranteed. It's not going to be exactly what we're looking into, looking for. You know, We don't know God in order to get somewhere. We know God to know God because he is good enough for that. He is, knowing God is enough as is. That is enough of a goal. The other aspect to just to let yourself rest in and be aware of is this idea of being active versus passive. I don't love the phrase pursuing God because God doesn't need to be pursued. But recognizing that God is already, already with you, we still got stuff we got to work on. We still got stuff we got to work through. So I wouldn't tell you to pursue God. I would ask you to spend time in recognizing what does it mean to know God for you. It will be different for everyone. What does it mean to know God for you? And what is it going to look like in your daily life? How is it going to actually live out? Whatever the practical things you're going to do to help yourself recognize what it means to know God for you. Is it increasing the time of prayer you just spend with him? Is it spending more time in the Bible? Because the Bible is an incredible way to just know who God is. We see his actions all through it. We see his heart all through it. Is it going to be more time in community with people who challenge you and speak into your life? Is it going to be more time of worship? And when you're in worship, really being there. What is it going to be for you in what it means to know God? And recognize that those actions don't get you closer. But instead, they give you space just to hear him. Just make that space for him. Another thing is this idea of our deepest desire versus our strongest desire. I was listening to a sermon by John Mark Comer, uh, and he used this phrase, recognizing your deepest desire versus your strongest desire. And that really stuck with me because my deepest desire is to know God and be known by God. My strongest desire is to sleep in. <laughs> right? My strongest desire is to not talk to people about what I'm struggling with. My strongest desire is to not read the Bible, but to watch Parks and Rec. <laughs> and there's ways to recognize that I, there's, of course, time to watch Parks and Rec. There's, of course, you know, time to share and time to not. But looking at what your deepest desire is, what is your deepest desire? And what are the moments when your strongest desire is challenging that, not coming alongside it? And not letting that strongest desire define that moment of decision. Let yourself rest and think through, what is my deepest desire? I believe David's deepest desire was to know God and be known by God. Sometimes his strongest desire counteracted that. And you can read about those stories. They're fascinating. But sometimes his strongest desire went very much against his deepest desire. But I believe his deepest desire was for God. What is your deepest desire? 
And how do you balance that against your strongest one in that moment? So I have, if this is something that resonates with you, I have a challenge uh, for, you, for the homework for this week. If this is something that God is working on your heart with, read Psalm 139 this week and meditate on it. As much as our relationship with God is ours, we can't always define it based on what someone else has experienced or how they know God. David is an incredible example of looking at what it does mean to know God, to see the way that he loves God and the way that he vulnerably lets himself be known by God in his deepest parts and his darkest moments. And Psalm 139 is a beautiful uh, message of that. I mean, what better way to see what it looks like to know God than to read the poetry of a man who was known as the guy whose heart had a, uh, a man after God's own heart. What better way to start? It's an amazing, amazing psalm. So read through that this week and meditate on it. But I want to send you out today with a quote instead from this guy named Brother Lawrence. If this is something else that's also on your heart, his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, it's like the tiniest little book. Uh, it's an incredible read. But this was a guy who worked in a monastery. He was a monk, and he served as a cleaner and dishwasher and cook. He was not, like, the most esteemed monk, (laughs) the most esteemed teacher, the most learned student. Uh, And he had this incredible relationship with God that people began to recognize and very highly value. And he wrote this little book. And I just want to leave you with a moment to think through his encouragement Because if there's anything, any action that I would say that we can go out from this place with is talk to God. Just talk to him. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to know your thoughts. He wants to know your struggles. He wants to know you. And when I get caught up in this trying and striving to know God with my own actions and so afraid that my moments of disobedience or my moments of forgetfulness or my moments of not caring is going to define my relationship with God, it won't. The way you know God does not need to be defined by your actions if you choose not to define them that way and let God be the definer of your relationship with God. So start by talking to him. Brother Lawrence says... He does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, at other times to thank him for the graces past and present. He has bestowed on you in the midst of your troubles to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly, he is nearer to us than we think.